Does New Zealand have the financial strength to withstand another catastrophic series of earthquakes like those in Canterbury? This Radio New Zealand Insight explores how a depleted earthquake commission can provide further protection and asks how much backup can be expected from the private insurance industry. Amid the barrage of bad news that emerged from Canterbury's earthquakes was a harmless-sounding but ominous remark. The Crown guarantee will have to be invoked. That's because the Earthquake Commission is running dry paying for Canterbury, so an already stretched government will face a big bill for any future catastrophic quake. I'm Eric Frickberg, and Insight This Week asks why this is happening, despite the Earthquake Commission having had 65 years to get ready for Canterbury. And it asks what can be done to protect New Zealand from the economic impact of a future earthquake disaster. No one who lived through Canterbury's September 2010 quake will ever forget it. Nor will people from outside Canterbury if they listen to reports like this. You just cannot possibly imagine that this has happened in Christchurch. And it's not just a central city, it's everywhere, suburbia. In one street, every single house has got a tarpaulin on its roof because the chimney's fallen in or part of the roof has fallen through the, the rest of the building or the side of the house has fallen down. Radio New Zealand's journalists described destruction at every turn. Surely it couldn't get any worse. But five and a half months later, it did. We can confirm that we have 76 bodies currently at the temporary morgue, but we know that there are more bodies yet to be recovered and we're in the process of doing that. A police official on the day. The total impact of the second quake is immeasurable, as the grief and trauma from 185 deaths cannot be quantified, nor can a price tag be put on sorrow at the loss of one's life's work, on individual despair, or on being forced to leave one's hometown. But finance ministers, by definition, have to put anguish aside and work out exactly how much things cost. This is what Bill English told Parliament on Budget Day. The Treasury has recently increased its estimate of the total rebuilding costs from $30 billion to $40 billion, the equivalent of almost 20% of New Zealand's annual GDP. The government's share of that total cost will be significant, around $15.2 billion. Of the $25 billion the government is not paying for, commercial insurers are paying $15 billion, leaving $10 billion in losses in infrastructure and services and in losses to uninsured individuals and companies. To understand why this situation has come about, you have to go back to New Zealand's other catastrophic quake 80 years before those in Canterbury. The noise and the trembling of the ground seemed to me as though this must be the end of the world. I could see, coming through the ground, the shock waves of that earthquake. A description of the Hawke's Bay quake of 1931 that killed 258 people. Many of those who escaped with their lives lost their livelihoods, as only 10% of earthquake losses were paid for by insurance companies. Attempts to remedy this founded due to the Great Depression and were eclipsed by the looming Second World War. But in 1942, while that war was being fought, a large quake struck Masterton. The force of the shake damaged buildings in Wellington, which in many cases were once again unprotected by insurance. Three years later, an unused pot of money set aside for war damage was transformed into the Earthquake and War Damage Commission, 
later renamed the Earthquake Commission. It was one in a series of social protection measures enacted by the government and applauded later by the Prime Minister, Peter Fraser. We've proceeded to build up our structure of social justice that people find safety, find security in this land of ours. We have made provision for every human eventuality. The Commission started with a sum of £4 million, which would be augmented by annual contributions from property owners with insurance. The aim was quite simply for the New Zealand state to organise its citizens to save up money to pay for the big one. For a while, the scheme worked well. The Commission easily found the $2.5 million needed to pay for earthquake damage in Inangahua in 1968. Two decades later came its biggest challenge so far. And we now know the worst hit area in the larger settlements of the Bay of Plenty was Edgecombe. There's still no power, water or sewage services there. And many this was the powerful earthquake that struck the Bay of Plenty in 1987. Big mess to clean up there, eh? The Edgecombe quake cost the Commission an unheard of sum, $136 million. But it still left plenty in the kitty, and the Commission coped easily with two sharp earthquakes near Dannyburg in 1990 and another one in Gisborne in 2007. But beneath this apparent success was a very different version of events. A report written by Victoria University academics 55 years after the Earthquake Commission was started actually called the Commission insolvent. Their argument was the Commission pledged to do too much and handled its savings too poorly to be fully dependable in a crisis. Commission staffers have some sympathy for this position. The Earthquake Commission, EQC, grew out of the old Earthquake and War Damage Commission and it covered all physical assets that were insured in New Zealand. David Middleton was General Manager, later Chief Executive of the Earthquake Commission from 1993 till 2010. He says for its first half century, the Commission pledged to do far more than it possibly could. For the main disadvantage was the liability. It did insure literally every physical asset in New Zealand, stock in trade, aircraft, ships, buildings, plant, machinery. That liability, if it had been brought to fruition by a large earthquake, would have been possibly too much even for the New Zealand government to bear. It was a huge liability. It had to be restricted. The exercise I remember was simply valuing all the buildings along the terrace and assuming that they were uh, damaged to a certain percentage and coming up with a figure of billions and billions of dollars of damage. That was just one street. Along with its risks of insolvency during its first half century, the Earthquake Commission ignored reinsurance. This would have allowed powerful reinsurance companies in Switzerland and elsewhere to leverage the Commission's earthquake coverage up to a higher level of protection than could be achieved with premiums alone. These dual problems were overcome in the 1990s when the Commission's commitments were scaled back to realistic levels and reinsurance gradually began to boost the total level of protection by 60 or more percent. But another problem persisted. Governments began to take money from the Commission. The former National Party MP Ian McLean was chairman of the Commission in the early 90s and describes what he regarded as a particularly serious case. 
Well, the biggest grab was in the late 1980s where David Cagle took something, as I recall, something like three-quarters of a billion dollars to balance his budget. Um, might not mean quite as much as that, but certainly a big, a big chunk to, uh, to balance his budget. A minister in the Labour government at the time, Peter Nielsen, questions that figure and adds the money was taken to incentivise the Commission to take out reinsurance, not simply because the government wanted the cash. Nevertheless, the Commission for years did pay out money to both Labour and national governments. The Victoria University report says it was forced to pay out one-third of its surplus each year to the government and pay half of what was left as a dividend. Between 1988 and 1995, these payments diminished the sum of money the Commission had available for earthquakes by $1.5 billion. That exceeds the Commission's total shortfall from the Canterbury quakes. Ian McLean says this behaviour by governments is a false economy. The fact is that if the government takes the money on the way through, its exposure increases over time. If it takes the money away from EQC now, then it's exposed to any losses that EQC can't handle itself after a big disaster like Christchurch. The government can't have its cake and eat it. If it takes the money now, it loses protection against its exposure in the future. In the late 1990s, the Commission renewed its campaign against the government charges or imposts. Its then General Manager, David Middleton. As Chief Executive, it wasn't for me to object, but the Board certainly made its case uh, in its annual reports and in its reports to the Select Committee year after year. And indeed, again under Dr Cullen, the imposts on EQC were dropped. During David Middleton's term, the sum of money in the National Disaster Fund, the single pot of cash laboriously saved up since 1945, trebled from $2 billion to $6 billion. An extra $4 billion became available from reinsurance. Still not enough, but closer to the needs of Canterbury than could have been imagined at any time during the Commission's laboured past. But something else emerged to cancel out the Commission's best efforts to modernise rampant property inflation that tripled the cost of a home while leaving the Commission's income static. David Middleton again. EQC was put at a greater and greater disadvantage as property values grew, but its cap stayed the same. It actually limited its premium income much less than its liability. If I give you an example, in 1993, uh, if an earthquake had caused $30,000 worth of damage to a house, then EQC would have paid that whole $30,000. Currently, those prices have just about trebled, um, so that same claim for that damage today would cost $90,000. EQC would be paying all that claim, $90,000 instead of $30,000, but getting exactly the same premium. A Wellington economist, Ian Dixon, was a member of the Earthquake Commission from 1989 to 1998. He's tried to discover how or why the Commission's reforms of the early 90s didn't factor in property inflation, and he couldn't find the answer. But he says whatever the cause, the effect was serious. It constrained the Commission's ability to keep pace with inflation. What would have happened is from the late 90s till now, so 13, 14 years, the Earthquake Commission would have had a much greater inflow of income with no corresponding outflow of cost. Now, it may have chosen with that income to buy some more reinsurance, or it may simply have reinvested that money, but certainly the funds standing to its account by now would have been much greater had that measure not been put in place.
Have you any idea by how much more it would have been? Um, I haven't actually done the sums, but it would be quite a lot. The problem of property inflation outstripping insurance premiums persisted for almost two decades. The former National Party president, Neville Young, was chairman of the Earthquake Commission from the late 1990s to around 2005, and he argues the mismatch between premiums and liabilities was not his job to fix. I took the view, and still do, that's a policy issue for the government. We noted in our reports and things that the risk appeared to be increasing, but what you how you judge the reality of that risk and the, and the the likely time of being called on, all those sorts of stuff. That's actually pure policy decision-making. Was there not an issue if its incoming funds were not sufficient, nearly sufficient, to meet its potential liabilities? That's not within the bailiwick of the, of the Earthquake Commission to determine. That's a policy matter. Well, then, if property prices basically tripled from the reforms of the early 90s until the quake of 2010, and levies and the cap did not go up in that time, and it was the Crown's business, then was it not a Crown failure? I can't see the logic in that. In later years, says its General Manager David Middleton, the Commission renewed its efforts to get governments to listen. EQC constantly made the point in every report to every minister and in its annual reports, uh, if somebody went back through them, you would see it as, as a recurring theme that the caps should be adjusted. And what was the response? The response was obviously nothing was done. Despite all these problems, the Earthquake Commission was able to accumulate $6 billion in its National Disaster Fund and around $4 billion in reinsurance by the time the first Canterbury quake hit. Ian Simpson, who replaced David Middleton just months before that quake, says that sum of money is being raced through right now. The fund is being used as we incur claims to pay those claims. The way our reinsurance works, we would pay the first $1.5 billion dollars of each claim, so for September, for February and for June, which are the big reinsurance events. So, so far we've paid out just over $3 billion from the fund, about $3.5 billion, billion, and now we're into those reinsurance claims. By the time we get to the end of the Canterbury recovery, 2015, we'll have used up all the fund, we'll have used up that reinsurance money, and on current forecast we'll be calling on the Crown for about a billion dollars through the Crown Guarantee. In the aftermath of the Canterbury quakes, the Earthquake Commission got approval from the government to painstakingly rebuild its finances. The levy payable by homeowners with insurance was tripled from $0.05 cents to $0.15 cents per $100 of insured value. The Commission has opted not to use that money to rebuild its National Disaster Fund quickly, but to use a big chunk of it to buy reinsurance, viewing that as the only real game in town. Ian Simpson explains further. Previously, our reinsurance cover topped out at about the $4 billion mark. We're now buying cover up to $5 billion. And the cost of that reinsurance has just about quadrupled. So we're using the increased income from our levy payers to meet the ongoing costs of the organisation, but also to pay for as much reinsurance as we can buy. Well, I guess that raises the question as whether the National Disaster Fund will ever be rebuilt to anything like what it was. It's actually a very complicated question. So we need to start with, when the scheme is reviewed, what's the risk that EQC will be taking on? So will we still cover 
contents building and land well we still cover all the perils that we currently cover we'll, once we understand that risk profile that we're taking on then we can look at what will the, be the income we receive will the state recede the fund once we have all those parameters then we can start to optimize our reinsurance program going forward and and set a target size for the natural disaster fund on current projections a single large quake in wellington would cost the earthquake commission seven billion dollars with five billion in reinsurance that would send a bill to the government of two billion but canterbury had multiple earthquakes producing a total bill of twelve billion dollars so if that happened again, the government would get an invoice of $7 billion. That would be on top of the costs of welfare, of lower tax payments from shattered businesses, or of a red zone style buyout. Then there's another financial risk as well. It is estimated that there are between 15,000 and 25,000 earthquake-prone buildings in New Zealand. To strengthen them would cost between $960 million and $12.5 billion, depending on the degree of strengthening and the time taken to do it. This message to strengthen buildings against a future big quake stems from a review done by the Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment. At a series of public meetings to discuss this proposal, many people expressed extreme worry about what it could do to the economic value of their apartments, the only real asset many of them have. On the day that the council sends its letter, the value is destroyed instantly. People cannot sell the building and are lucky to get tenants. This gentleman's absolutely right. There are plenty of instances where the value of a building declines by as much as the level of earthquake strengthening and more the minute they get a yellow notice on their door or get the letter. And, and how, do, how do we cope with that? The Minister of Building and Construction, Morris Williamson, is at pains to say nothing has been finalised yet. But he told people at those same public meetings that whatever costs do eventuate, they would not be paid for by the government. And he gave an analogy. We have very large trucking companies in New Zealand who have huge fleets. We set a standard that they have to have proper brakes, they have to have proper tyres, they have to have proper headlights, etc., etc. But the government doesn't then say, well, we'll pay to fix up your trucks for you. They do need people to think about it, that those standards of safety that airlines have to meet for their aeroplanes and trucking companies have to meet for their trucks, etc., etc., may be just a standard part of what is a minimum safety standard a building owner must ensure their building meets. One criticism of the push to strengthen buildings is that earthquakes have killed relatively few people compared with other causes. While New Zealand is extremely earthquake-prone, its sparse population means quakes rarely strike a bullseye on a town. The Ministry's own report puts the figure at 483 people dead from all New Zealand quakes, compared with 37,000 killed on the roads. But this argument goes only so far, according to some experts. Stefano Pampanin is president of the New Zealand Society of Earthquake Engineering. He says the cost of saving lives from earthquake-prone buildings could be made more affordable than it appears. After very minor but fundamental intervention to preserve life as much as possible, then you can go for the next step up and incrementally in, the, in 10 to 15 years have a plan to join 
to make maintenance of the building becoming also a strengthening opportunity of the building itself. Not everything has to be done immediately, otherwise the excuse becomes the same excuse internationally. We don't have enough money, let's not even start. Stefano Pampanen says the costs of strengthening existing buildings can vary between 10% and 50% of the value of those buildings. He admits this sounds like a lot of money, but says, spread over many years, it's practical. The organisations at the heart of this are the private sector insurance companies, whose contribution to Canterbury equaled that of the government at its earthquake commission, and in the case of commercial buildings, paid the full cost. The chief executive of the Insurance Council, Tim Grafton, says in 2011 there were the largest number of insurance claims worldwide from any year to date. That pushed up insurance premiums and the excess people pay before an insurance company even thinks of writing a cheque. Insurance uh, premiums have risen sharply for the reasons that have been given. There's a recalibration of the risk uh, that New Zealand presents after having uh, presented itself as the fourth largest insurance claim in world history. Uh, so you bring in excesses to be able to provide people with insurance at a, uh, at, at a reasonable rate. Canterbury's catastrophic series of quakes have had other effects on the commercial insurance industry as well. Full replacement policies are being phased out and owners of large buildings are having to get a patchwork quilt of policies from several insurance companies since no one company will take on the entire risk single-handed. And Tim Grafton says some buildings simply won't be insured at all. This will apply primarily to commercial buildings, particularly pre-1935, um, unreinforced masonry. Uh, these buildings, uh, Canterbury showed, uh, just simply uh, became total economic losses as a result of the uh, earthquakes. Uh, so we've got uh, buildings of that type in certain parts of New Zealand that become very difficult to insure. One group of people at the front line of earthquake risks are big city apartment owners. Some of them face dual threats from rising insurance premiums and tighter building rules. Neil Cooper heads a group representing chairman of body corporates which administer apartment blocks and says huge challenges face his members. The biggest issue has been the increase in premiums that they've faced over the last couple of years, massive increases. And uh, you live in a fairly famous building by Wellington Sanders, the Dominion Building. Uh, how does this affect you? <laughs> well, we've had massive increases. Um, the first year went from 58,000 to, um, uh, to 93,000, then it went to um, 197, 198,000. Uh, the last increase we've had has gone up to um, uh, 247,000. Insurance prices do not always go up. Sometimes they come down. A calamity like 9-11 pushes costs way up. Then, as payments are made, the crisis passes through the system like a snake digesting its meal, and insurance prices slide back down again. Will that happen this time? Tim Grafton does not think there'll be a big fall. What we've seen in the reinsurance market in the last year or so is that the, uh, the steep upward climb has now levelled off. It would be nice to see that go down, but it's really important to remember that reinsurance costs are the consequence of global events. Now, 
who can predict what will happen globally. And there's another sort of complicated layer here. I mean, as I said, you, know, you can't have the fourth largest event in insurance history happen in this country and for people not to sit up and remember that for some time to come. So even though things may sort of uh, flatten out or come down, I don't think that we're ever going to return to the levels of insurance that we once enjoyed simply because uh, reality has woken up everybody with respect to Canterbury. And there's still one more cost pressure. The Reserve Bank intends to greatly increase the amount of money insurance companies must keep in reserve to prepare for a disaster, adding to their costs. All this means the financial impact of the Canterbury quakes will reverberate on, long after demolition teams have finally quit the town. What seems certain is that in future there'll be less overall insurance protection and a greater requirement for ordinary citizens to pay for some of their own loss. Mary Camario is Professor of Architecture at the University of California in Berkeley. She's investigating the economics of earthquakes and says the level of insurance protection that Christchurch had is unlikely to be sustained if international experience is anything to go by. The insurance coverage in Christchurch was quite high, probably 80 to 90 percent. Um, in other countries, that's not the case. In Japan, it's about 16 percent after Fukushima. In the U.S., it's about 5 percent. Um, now, what that means in the countries that have lower insurance coverage, because it's all in the private market, there's no EQC equivalent, um, people are basically on their own to do their repairs. It's seen as private property and it's your problem. Um, if it's your property and you don't have insurance, too bad. At this stage, the economic impact of Canterbury's earthquakes is still a game in progress. No one is sure exactly how it'll work out. Among other things, the entire structure of the Earthquake Commission is under review. Some changes are virtually certain. It's likely the Commission will no longer have to provide contents insurance, the argument being that an organisation set up for catastrophe cover should not have to waste time and money on small claims like broken crockery. Less certain is the need to insure land, which incurred huge costs due to the effects of liquefaction, but proved its worth repeatedly over many decades when homes were affected by landslides and floods. Other issues include whether the Commission should be a port of first call for quake-hit people or become a leanly staffed back office, a kind of wholesaler to the insurance company's retailer. But hardly anyone seems to think the Commission shouldn't exist, not the overseas countries which have tried to emulate, nor people like its former Commissioner, Ian Dixon. I still think the response of having some kind of natural disaster fund is a sensible thing to do having regard to New Zealand's own unique position in the world, a rather, rather narrow economic base and our exposure to natural disasters because you know, we sit on the rim of fire, we sit in the midst of the roaring 40s in the middle of the ocean, so we've got you know, a damp, windy climate. Um, these things all add up to you know, kind of a rolling mall of natural disasters which we're afflicted with from time to time. And it's very difficult, I think, with a small insurance market and a relatively narrow economic base to manage those other than by some degree of prepayment or mutualisation of some monies to cope with you know, what will happen. I mean, these things will happen. It's just a question of magnitude and time and place. But we will have these kind of natural disasters. 
All these matters are under review, and that's expected to be done by the middle of next year. I'm Eric Frickberg, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by Steve Burridge.